The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning. Um, this morning, um, reading it's, it's from a passage in Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40, and I encourage you to follow along. There are Bibles underneath the chairs kind of scattered throughout, and you can also see it up behind me. The, the title of this um, passage is The Triumphal Entry. And, we had, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those, of, so those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is God's word. Let's pray and get rolling. Uh, Father, I thank you for your people, first of all, and how they, how I need them to remind me on a Sunday morning of how great and amazing and awesome you are. And I thank you that we can come and we can sing, not by ourselves, but we sing together of your greatness and your goodness, of your love, of your grace. We don't just sing it from our hearts, we get to hear it sung over us as it lifts our hearts. I thank you that we gather here this morning, not because it just happens to be Sunday, but because you are the almighty creator God who fashioned us for you and our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. Father, we come this morning with restless hearts. We come, some of us, with suffering hearts, some of us with unsure hearts, some of us come feeling like we have a lack of faith, and some come with no faith at all. And we come here this morning and we remember that we come with empty hands. 
Father, I pray that you would fill them. We come with empty hearts, and I pray that you would fill them. God, would you speak this morning to each person who's here? Glorify your Son and help us to find true and lasting joy in him. In the name of Jesus, amen. So love stories are captivating, right? I mean, it's what almost every movie, even action movies in some way, are about love. And what the movies and shows and songs and books and stories and fables all tell us is that there's this thing called true love. And when you find true love, it is worth everything. It's worth sacrificing whatever you need to sacrifice in order to obtain and be with true love. If you find true love, then you found the, the greatest, most powerful thing in the universe. It's worth, if you can find it, it's worth turning your world upside down to get true love. It's, it's worth giving up wealth and power and fame if you can just find that once in a century kind of love. The way the stories go, and it's all the same story, the way the stories go that if you find that love, then everything is happily ever after after that. Now, many of us in here in this room have been alive long enough to figure out that we haven't found that love yet. But this story in, that we're reading in the book, of actually the whole book of Luke is really this story. Whether you realize it or not, it's this kind of love story. And it's right here in this passage that Allison just read for us. And isn't she awesome at scripture reading? I, when she does scripture reading, I'm like, I shouldn't even preach. I just put the Bible away and everybody can, let's sing again and we can all go home. But in this passage that she just read for us, this is where the plot really starts to thicken. So in any book, you have like where the, the plot builds and builds and builds. And then you get to the part where it's the, the everything starts to turn and it starts to really move. And that's what's happening here. The first part of the book of Luke is really about who Jesus is or who Jesus was. The, the second part of the book of Luke that we just finished, that we just came out of, right here in the middle of chapter 19, really deals with uh, what it means to follow Jesus. And, and really, in finding out what it means to follow Jesus, it tells us a lot about who we are. Because if you see Jesus in his, like he's a towering figure, he is the, the, the book of Luke tells us he's the almighty creator God, taken on flesh, living among men, coming to save us. He's the rightful king that's coming. But then when we hear what it means to follow him and he demands, he says, I demand you to follow me with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. If, if, if you don't hate your, if you don't love me this much, there's so much so that you, in comparison, hate your father and mother and brother and sister, you don't deserve to follow me. A man came to him and said, hey, I'll follow you, Jesus. Let me go bury my father. He said, let the dead bury the dead. Come and follow me. A rich young man came to him, a very important man, and said, hey, I want to follow you. And he said, here's how you follow me. Sell everything you have and follow me. Jesus laid a high bar of what it meant to follow him. And what that shows us is a lot about ourselves, right? Things that we hold high and that we value greater than the God who created us. 
It might be sex or money or career or relationships with other people, but we value those things above him. But it's here in this part of the story where the plot really thickens. Because where we should be left with when we see who Jesus is and we see what it means to follow him is we should feel there's a great gulf between those two places. God is deserving of my undying affection, not just my obedience, though he deserves that, but he's deserving of my undying affection to him. And then when I see myself and my inability, I'm not a rich I'm neither rich nor a ruler, but if he asked me to give up everything I have, I'll be honest with you, my knee-jerk reaction is to say, can't we find some sort of common ground where we can just, I can keep some of it and still follow you? But it's here that we see not just who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, we see Jesus' heart. We see why he came. And it's that that speaks to our heart. Because here's the truth this morning. Jesus, his epic love for you cannot be ignored. It's the kind of love, that true love, that epic, undying, world-changing kind of love that all the stories are written about, all the movies are shot about, all the songs are written for. It's that kind of love that he has for us, that he has for you. And it cannot be ignored, and it's that kind of love that changes us. That's the good news in the gospel. Luke is what gospel means. It means good news. The good news is that Jesus came to change us that big gulf between who he is and who we are, that we can't seem to get between those two. He came, and his love for us changes us. We see that he's not just a king, but he's a king that we can love. That's because he's a king who loves and loves deeply and powerful, and we see his love on display here. It's a humble love. It's a fierce love. It's a passionate love. It's a compassionate love. It's a sweet love. It's a pure love. It's a powerful love. It's a world-changing kind of love. His love is epic in every sense of the word. And it's here that the story turns in a tragic and yet beautiful way. And don't all great love stories have that part? Like think of Romeo and Juliet where it, it turns on a tragic, yet beautiful, sacrificial kind of love. Here's the thing. Love is complicated. And love is demanding. It's not what we tend to see in movies and painted in songs where it's more emotional. Like a look in your eyes across the room and all of a sudden, the world changed, the world tilted, and everything was happy after that because I felt these emotions. Love, at the heart of what love is, is not, it's not sentimentalism. It's commitment. And it is embarrassingly demanding. Love demands of the other person, of our object of our affection, and it demands back to us. 
So as Jesus here enters the city of Jerusalem, he's looking at this last week of his life. We're gonna see his epic love and we're gonna see that it's joyous, it's compassionate, it's demanding, and it's transforming. It's joyous, it's compassionate, it's demanding, and it's transformational or transformative. First of all, his Jesus love is a joyous love. We see that in this section that, that uh, Allison read for us. So uh, Jesus, is, he's been traveling towards the city of Jerusalem for some time now with his disciples, and along the way, he's teaching, and he's, he's like miracles are just following him. He's healing people, blind are seeing, like amazing things have been happening in his life are around him. And his disciples, as they approach the city, he instructs some of his disciples. He says, all right, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go in the, next, in the next village over, and you're going to find that village a colt. We don't know if it was, it was probably a baby donkey, a young donkey, but a colt, a young, unridden, uh, we'll say donkey, because I'd, I'd like to say the other word, but we're in church, like what a donkey is. But hey, they, they they, they see the unridden, and you're going to find this unridden colt in this village, and I want you to bring him to me. And if anybody asks you why are you bringing him, just all you need to say is the master has need of him, which is a pretty like, bold thing to do, right? It's the, the equivalent of saying, hey, I want you to go into this village over, and you're going to find a car that's parted from this house that they have that's a brand new car, and I want you to just like jump in the car. The keys will be in there and just drive it away, and if the owner comes out and says, what in the world are you doing? Just say, hey, the master has need of it, and everything's going to be okay. Now, these disciples go into the village and they find the donkey, just as he said, they take the baby donkey, the masters say, hey, what are you doing with him? And they said, the master has need of him, and they say, okay, that sounds good, and they take the donkey out of this, the village, it doesn't make any sense. They bring him to Jesus, and, the, and they, they recognize that something big is happening here because they believe Jesus may be the Messiah. He's certainly somebody really important. All these amazing miracles are happening. And so he, now he's riding a donkey, which is declaring, an unwritten donkey, which is declaring to the city of Jerusalem as he enters it, I am the Messiah coming to my capital city. That's what he's, de- that's what he's declaring because it's fulfilling prophecies that have been given about how the Messiah is gonna enter Jerusalem. And they have a party on the way down the mountain into the town. They are filled with joy because to be with Jesus, to be with the king is to be filled and surrounded by joy. First of all, they were, had joy in God's providences, in Jesus' providence. That Jesus could tell them, go into this village. Nothing really miraculous happens in the story necessarily, except the fact that he tells them that there's going to be a cult there. They go there, there's a cult there. They grab the cult. The master say, don't take him. They say, the master has need of him. They say, okay, well, you can take him then. And they bring him. And they say, this Jesus, he keeps astounding us. He is providentially in control of all of life. He knows the little details of life, and he's in control of them. Nothing escapes his knowledge. Nothing escapes his power. And to be his disciple, if you are his disciple this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus, we should find joy in God's providential care for us. That he is everywhere at all times and he is all powerful to affect whatever he wants to happen. Nothing is beyond his control. Nothing is beyond his knowledge. It is all underneath his power and his knowledge. And to be with the king is to be with the one who knows the plays before they're called. 
If you could be a coach for another team, you could be far less talented than the other team. But if you know, ask the Patriots, if you know the plays that are going to be called before they're called, you have a great advantage. And that's the advantage that we have if we are servants and children of the king. Under his loving care and provision, we find adventure and joy and meaning in the in the everyday little details of life and knowing that he's in control of them. Next, they find joy in his miraculous power. In verse 36, it says that they, uh, it says they, Threw the, their cloaks on the, well, before that, in verse 35, it says they threw his cloaks on the, the donkey. He gets them the colt, and they start to, he comes, starts to come in down the, down the lane. As they rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, which is declaring this is royalty coming in. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that he, that they had seen. To be a servant of the king is to have joy in his miraculous miraculous power. Have you seen his miraculous power at work in your life? Have you seen him intervene for you in ways that you can't explain? Have you seen him come through for you when there was no hope? Meg and I have been in situations or particular, one particular season in the early on in a marriage where she lost her job and frankly, we were too stupid to know she could even like file for unemployment. We didn't even know we could do that. And, and, and we were looking, we had just moved into our first house and we, we, we looked at the bottom line of what we were bringing in, which was not much already. If she had a job, it was a lot less than that without that. And then we looked at the just expenses, not like, extra stuff, like just to stay like in the house and alive, like it didn't add up. And for months, somehow, like manna from heaven, money, I don't even know how it happened. People would hand us money. We must have looked bad. People would hand us money. <laughs> we got money in the mail. Other times, I don't even know how we made it. I didn't have a dollar in my pocket. And somehow we stayed alive, we were able to eat, and the, the light stayed on, and we, nobody kicked us out of our house. I don't know how that happened. He miraculously came through in those situations. Have you experienced something like that? If you're a believer, you've experienced the greatest miracle of all. God has breathed life into your dead soul where you were destined for eternal damnation apart from God, he somehow, when you, he looked at you and you saw, he saw nothing deserving, nothing that, 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 made, that was appealing to him or attractive to him out of you. He didn't say, oh, I gotta get this person on my team. He looked on you and you were a rebel, a dead rebel against the rightful king and he breathed life into your soul. A great miracle occurred. They were praising God for his miraculous power. They were praising loudly. Do you ever find yourself praising God loudly for his miraculous power that you've experienced or are experiencing in your life? I pray God would open our eyes this morning to see the ways that he has, has intervened and is intervening in our lives and it would cause us, not because I wanna hear you guys sing loud, but because I want to, us to have unlocked in our souls the gratefulness to see what it means to be the, a son of the king, a subject of the king who has all power and all authority in his hand. 
and is the miracle-working God. They took joy in his goodness. They said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They saw that not only did he go around doing miracles, not only was he providentially in control, but they saw that he's a good king. He's not just like, so I think somehow we take that for, sometimes we take that for granted for God. Like we just picture God would be like a, like if there is a God, he'd be a jovial, good, like awesome God. But there's no assurance of that. But our God is a good, good God who has your best interest at heart in his glory. He's not just miraculous. He is miraculously good on our behalf. When they said, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, and what they're saying is that Jesus, the king, is coming, and he's bringing what the, the Jewish word is shalom. It means peace, but it means wholeness. It means the way things should be. Not just an absence of hostility. It means rightness. And then lastly, they took joy in his authority. They were not just coming down the mountain with this peasant riding on the back of a donkey. They were, ride, they were walking with the king of kings and the Lord of lords who at a mere opening of his mouth and saying of the word, the universe came into being. They were walking on the side of that mountain with the one who holds the universe together and in the palm of his hand. That's why when Jesus answered the, the Pharisees, they said, rebuke your disciples. They recognized that the disciples were worshiping him as the Messiah, as the king that's coming to the city. He said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. That's how authoritative and how powerful this king is. That if you and I do not cry out, the very rocks beneath our feet will cry out in praise to him because they recognize what human beings often don't recognize and that he is the one that we were created by and we were created for. That's what kind of king he is. He's a king of joy, but he's also, Jesus, he's a king of compassionate love. We see it as he's riding into the city in verse 41, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, he's talking to Jerusalem, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you. Picture him weeping as he's saying this, as he's looking out over the side of the mountain. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. It's actually an exact prophecy of what happened in the year 70 when the Romans would come to the rebellious city Jerusalem and lay siege to it and would build another wall around the wall of Jerusalem to keep the people inside as they attacked the city. And tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. The Josephus said that the Romans did such a great job of tearing down the walls of Jerusalem that you could walk past the walls and not even know anything had been there. That's how they destroyed it. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did, because, here's why, you did not know 
the time of your visitation. I'm coming to you as the rightful king, to the city that is my city, to the people that I have made, to my particular city, to the place where my temple is, and they are totally ignoring the fact that Jesus is coming. The rightful king is coming. But here's what kind of king he is. He doesn't stand on the mountain knowing. He knows that not only are they not greeting him as the king, that as he, whenever he gets into the city and over this next week, they're going to view him as sort of a sideshow, an interesting thing to watch and to listen to. But just in a few days, they're not just going to be ignoring him. They're going to be clamoring for his death. And he knows that, and he stands on the side of the mountain looking at the city, and he doesn't shake his fist at it. He doesn't damn it. He doesn't call down fire upon it as he's even pronouncing the judgment that will happen upon the city for rejecting him, he's weeping and crying with compassion. And he says, if only, if only. He's torn up. He's weeping. The, the word there in the original language is, is pointing to he's almost wailing in mourning for the city that's rejecting him. You know, they say that absolute power corrupts absolutely, but that's not really true. Absolute power only shows us the corruption that's already in us. But here's Jesus, the King of Kings, the only one that can be trusted with absolute power. Because he doesn't view people as his pawns, neither does he, uh, is he trying to because most leaders, they, they end up viewing people as their pawns or they turn the, what are they leading into sort of like their own pleasure organization that strokes their ego, that fulfills their desires, their need to be wanted and admired and to be the boss. And, but Jesus is the only one that can be trusted with absolute power as he, the king, the returning king to his city, looks at the city and while he's pronouncing the judgment upon it, he weeps and mourns and cries over them. That's what kind of king he is. A compassionate king, full of compassionate love. So we see Jesus' love is a joyous love, it's a compassionate love, but Jesus' love is also a demanding love. In verse 45, he gets into the city, and as soon as he enters the city, he entered the temple, verse 45, and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. So the, the temple was divided into different parts, and then this outer court, the court of the Gentiles, uh, they had, over time, because the, the, the temple and worship of God was a sacrificial system. So you would have to come and sacrifice certain kinds of animals for certain types of, uh, certain types of ceremonies to cover your sin. And not everybody could bring an animal with them, and so they had set up a, a couple of things. One is, like, you could only, you could buy the animal that you need to sacrifice here. It's very convenient, right? Very, right here in the, in the court of the Gentiles. And you only could use one certain type of currency in the temple. So you would bring in whatever type of currency you have, and you would exchange it for the temple currency so that you could buy these animals, and you could 
pay your offerings. Over time, it didn't just become something convenient for the worshipers, but it became a thriving mercantile establishment. The people got distracted from the purpose of coming to worship to the business of worship. And I think that we're guilty of that. I know I'm guilty of that. The American church at large is incredibly guilty of that. We've turned Christianity into an enterprise, into a business, into a money-making scheme. We've turned our music and our media and our literature and our churches themselves into profitable ventures where a limited few benefit from the faithfulness of the masses. And Jesus comes in and don't we see the, the swing of his emotion in this section? He's coming down the, the mountain. You can see him smiling with his disciples who are rejoicing at the mighty, miraculous works they've seen. He gets to the side of the mountain. He looks over the city and he weeps because he knows that destruction is coming upon them because of their rejection of him. And now he enters the temple and he sees where they have made it. You've turned my house, which is made to be a house of prayer, into a den of robbers, he says. And we see Jesus angry in a righteous anger. And if, I don't know how you've pictured Jesus in your past, but like, I think we sometimes tend to picture uh, God, like the, we don't know what God looks like, but we picture God sometimes as fierce and like maybe an old man with a long white beard and maybe a little bit vengeful. Or, but we picture Jesus as like, sort of like a really nice guy with a, like a weird smile and he never frowns and never says anything that's not nice. He's a nice guy. But Jesus is apparently kind of a manly man because he steps into the temple and he sees what they have turned his father's house into. They've hoarded his father's house out. And he comes through with a righteous anger that causes people, I and mean, it was one against many in this place, that causes the people to cower. Other accounts of this story tell us that he turns tables over. Because see, in his compassion, there's strength. That's because love is demanding. And the greater the love, the greater the demand. So, Dale loves me. I feel like I can say that. Dale loves me. And because he loves me, there's a certain expectation in that, right? Like there's a friend code. Like he's not gonna tell me something in confidence and I'm gonna go blabbing around to other people. We're gonna spend time together and enjoy each other and I'm not gonna go around, you know, brand and say that Dale, like he's a, he's a real piece of work, isn't he? He is a piece of work, but I'll say that, I'll say that publicly. <laughs> There's a trust factor there. There's a demand. 
Because he loves me, he demands a certain amount of fidelity from me back to him. And that's right. Now, Megan loves me to a greater extent than Dale, thankfully. Megan loves me to a greater extent than Dale. She loves me more than Dale does. And because of that, she puts a greater demand upon me than Dale or anyone else does. Because the greater the love, the greater the demand. She demands greater fidelity. She, she demands greater faithfulness. She demands greater trust back from me because she loves me greatly. Love is not just nice and sentimental. Love is demanding. Because And the reason that's true is because anything else ruins the relationship. Megan loves me greatly if I do her wrong, which I do her wrong all the time, but if I do her greatly wrong, it's, it's a greater harm to our relationship than if I did Dale wrong because there's a greater love and a greater demand upon me and vice versa back to her. And God made you for himself. And he placed his great affection upon you even if you're not his child this morning, he causes the sun to rise and set upon you. He causes the rains to fall upon you. He gives you good things to eat. He gives you a restful place to lay your head. He gives you many things. He gives you the talents and abilities that you have in your life. And because he loves us greater and deeper and more powerfully than anyone else, he demands undying commitment from us to him. That's because commitment is the heart of love. It runs far deeper than mere emotion or attraction. We see that demanding love here. Jesus walks in and they had subverted what was supposed to be the most holiest event in the life of a Jew, a ch the chosen people of God, to enter the temple where God's own presence dwelt in the holy of holies, to offer sacrifices that he gave them the ability to offer sacrifices to appease his wrath upon their sin so they can enter in with a free conscience and worship him. They had subverted that into a money-making enterprise. Jesus will not allow that because love is passionate and love is demanding and his love upon you is demanding and passionate. Whether you're a believer in him today or not, wherever you are in your walk, he will not rest and allow you to love another greater than him. It's what he's rightfully due and frankly, until that is right, every other relationship in your life will be wrong. His love is demanding in addition to being compassionate and joyous. And lastly, Jesus' love is a transformational love. In verse 47, after he cleans out the temple. That, was the, that had to be like an awkward week, right? Because it just says like the week after that, he just comes to the temple and teaches. 
I mean, they must have been, he must have been some kind of angry. If they, if they like, this is how they make their money. He's there all week and they're like, yeah, I'm not sitting on my tables this week. In, in the most, in the busiest week in the temple, by the way. And he was teaching daily in the temple and the chief priests and the scribes, the ones who should have known better. And the principal men, the leaders of the people, were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Now hopefully, this is where our hearts begin to move from simply admiring Jesus to loving him. Because what we see foreshadowed in this conversation between the scribes and the priests and the leaders is where Jesus' joyful love, his compassionate love, and his demanding love are gonna merge together into one place. Because everyone that we have seen so far in this story today, from the disciples that are walking down the mountain rejoicing with him, to the Pharisees that try to convince him to, tell, to rebuke them, to the people of Jerusalem who are ignoring him, to the, lead, to the people who are hanging on his words in the temple, to the leaders who are beginning to plot against him, everyone by the time this week is done will have turned their backs on him. Even those rejoicing with him who had seen the great miracles will scatter when he's betrayed and the soldiers show up. Peter, his faithful, his faithful companion, will deny that he even knew who he was, not once, but three times. And not to a soldier, but to like a peasant girl. But his love, his transformational, demanding, compassionate, joyous love doesn't leave them to their deserved ruin, nor does it just say, hey, let's just brush aside their treacherous love and act like nothing ever happened. A price has to be paid for their treachery. A price has to be paid for your and my treachery. And that's why he's entering the city. He's entering the city as the Messiah, as the king returning to his city, but he's entering it to die. Jesus' epic love cannot be ignored. It will change us. When you see the king who is, has joyous love for you, has compassionate love for you, has demanding love upon you, when you see that and when you see him come, not to rule with an iron fist, but we see him come to die on our behalf. It will change us. It will either harden our hearts or it will soften them. It will either harden us in our hardness of hearts to the rightful king who we were made for, or it will soften our hearts and it will cause to erupt there a deep and powerful and abiding love 
for him because he has a deep and abiding and powerful love for us. So my question this morning is, where are you in this story? Is your heart becoming harder towards him? Because you think, you think of him as sort of a sideshow, something interesting to entertain yourself with or to come to church with or to listen on a podcast. Like you might be like Mr. or Mrs. Super Christian and you only listen to Caleb and you read your Bible every morning and you do the whole thing, but you really view him as a sideshow in your life. Or you view him as sort of a gift master who gives you what you want and what you need at the time that you need it. Or do you see him as the king who is joyous and compassionate and demanding towards you? Is your heart becoming harder to him? Or as we head towards Easter and we remember who he is and who we are, we begin to see what he did on our behalf and why he did it and what, what great epic love he had towards us. Will you let that change you? It can only transform us as we see, as he see, as we see what was in his mind as he entered the city, amidst his praising disciples, as he's weeping over the city, as he's gathering in the temple and the people are hanging upon his words, and yet around the corner the leaders are plotting against him. He's coming with his fierce, compassionate, demanding, joyous love, but he's coming to die. That's true love. That's epic love. That's what kind of king he is. I pray we would this morning let that move us and change us. True love Epic love is worth losing everything for. It's just not what most of the songs and movies painted as. It's this king who came for us to give himself for us. This morning, if you, I don't know where you are in your walk, if you're not a believer this morning, I pray this morning that love, that powerful transformational love would arrest you in your heart this morning. And you would experience the miracle of the new birth as you confess him as your king and as your Lord and accept his sacrifice that he came to give on your behalf. And if you're a believer this morning, I pray that that would stir our affections afresh and anew And as we go down the next six weeks towards Easter through the book of Luke, that we would have our hearts affected by his great love for us and it would transform us. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. 
For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.